0: If there's a book in the Old Testament that um, even the non-Christian um, is familiar with, it has to be the book of Jonah. But tragically most people even many Christians refer to it as a story about a whale when in fact it is a story about a dove whose meaning what the meaning is for the name of Jonah. It is the fifth of the minor prophets. As we've been studying the minor prophets, we're keeping track of them. In scripture, the number five is symbolic of God's grace. You know, in numerical um, typology, you have these things. Um, three is the trinity. Um, seven is completeness. Eight is new beginning, so on and so forth. Now, the book of Jonah is a story of God's grace extended. First, to the prophet Jonah. Secondly, to the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians. The grace of God always results... In the peace of God, and Jonah would have to appropriate the grace of God to experience a peace with God, which um, his name symbolizes, I said, uh, the symbol of a dove. Um, but it's only a reminder, not the reality, and God desires people to live in his reality. It's nice to have good intentions, it's nice to have information. ...and write theology, but if we're not able to live it out and put it to practice, really it's uh, merely just information. It has no power in our lives, nor effectiveness. Um, as always, we look at many different things in an introduction... ...and we try to get all the information within, from within the book and from any parallel passages that we can find some other places... Um, this way, all the information comes from inductive information, what is in the Bible, not outside. We will draw from some things that will confirm certain things, to um, the history of that, but we try to find all the evidence like a crime scene. We cord it off and we start searching. So let's begin with Jonah the man and the prophet. And some of this you've heard this morning, but we're not going to belabor it. The man Jonah... Um, the son of Amittai, in verse 1, we are told. And um, again, the name means my truth." Again, as I said, integrity, character in the family. And his name appears 18 times um, in the book. And it's confirmed through the second passage that we find in Second Kings 14, 25, where his, uh, the name Amittai, the son of Amittai, Jonah, comes up again. And um, it's where God used them to prophesy over northern Israel that had become idolatrous to Jeroboam II of uh, of some territory that was going to be restored to them. And we have that record there. Um, Jerome, uh, relating to the tradition of the Jews that Jonah was the son of the widow, Seraphat, that Elijah raised, um, has no biblical um evidence of it or credence it's never found within the Bible but merely tradition so it's wrong now the prophet Jonah notice was a prophet of God and indicate, indicated clearly by the words the word of the Lord came to Jonah in verse 1 as we've seen many of the minor prophets or the or the major prophets God had used Jonah as I said and Jeroboam remember the second is 793 to about 753 in um, so you, you tie both of them together, as we said this morning. You tie Jeroboam, you tie Jonah together. So if you believe in Jeroboam, that he's a biblical character and he really existed in history, then you cannot deny Jonah because he's put side by side with that prophecy that was given to him. And perhaps even Jonah gave it to him there in the palace of Samaria. And so um, to deny one, you have to deny the other. And because one is so believed and so real, the other one also must be admitted. And yet, many people have a lot of uh, doubt towards Jonah, but it's unfounded. Um, the place again, got, got heifer in Second Kings uh, fourteen twenty-five is where he's, where he's from, and um, it means wine press of digging, and in the region of Nazareth and Zebulun of Galilee, later known as Cana. Uh, Joshua nineteen thirteen makes the connection, and Jonah again was called. ...by God to go to Nineveh uh, um, to preach against the wickedness that had come up before him. Um, The eyes of the Lord go to and fro, we are told um, in the scriptures. And nothing is uh, ignored by God. Nothing uh, escapes God. Um, He sits on his throne. He looks. He sees. He hears. And he takes everything into account. And he uh, will deal with everything... Now or later, and it all will bring him glory. That's one of the issues that being God, you're not biting your nails. Um, You are on the throne. You are the creator. You are the sustainer. And you are the judge of all mankind. And so this was the man and the prophet Jonah here in the opening verse. Now, the book of Jonah is a narrative. The narrative is about God and Jonah, and of course, where he's being sent to the Ninevites, the Assyrians. The book has no prophetic message regarding the future as you read through it um, for any people or nation, as you know, usually we have in uh, prophetic books and prophecies for the future stuff. It doesn't have anything, but the book contains um, the impending judgment of God if they didn't repent. Uh, so that would be the only judgment. Uh, because Jonah is supposed to preach, and of course, um, God, if a person repents, God forgives. If the person doesn't repent, then judgment comes. So there's only one or the other way that God can go, because he is the epitome of holiness, and he can't condone uh, sin with any approval, Habakkuk tells us. So the first significant um, opposition came by J.B. Eichhorn in 1823. Um outside of that, the book has never been uh, disputed um, as historical until the 19th century with Eichhorn. And uh, this came with the rise of rationalism because of the uh, miraculous. See, the thing is with uh, the rationalist movement is they, they can't accept miracles from God. And so they, they have a lot of excuses and rejections of scripture. They're sort of like the, um, the Sadducees, the rationalists. They didn't believe in miracles or angels or spirits. And so they just do away with a lot of stuff. And so their, their um, ancestors are still here. The rationalists could not accept the miracles. Um, greatest being the um, survival of Jonah in the belly of the whale. Um, so they just dispel them, disqualifying the book as authentic or historical. Uh, Modern scholars say um, it is non-historical and that the psalm in chapter 2 that we'll see later on is a later insertion, what they call interpolation, but it has no evidence with that in chapter 2, verse 2 on down to 9. Now, this is nonsense for chapter 2 is a key and central theme of the deliverance of Jonah from the belly of the fish, marking Jonah's gratitude and his reluctance obedience. It is there in the belly of the whale that we see Jonah crying out to God. And God is using this. The objection again to the king of Nineveh has no sense since Nineveh was an alternate capital. If not the capital of Syria throughout much of the first half of the 18th century, history tells us this. Uh, Shalmaneser the first in uh, 1275 to 1246 B.C., began to expansion of the city. And that by the time of Tilgath-Pileser I, and will we read some of these names when you go through the major prophets and so on, uh, that by that time, Tilgath-Pileser I, in um, 1114 to 1076, Nineveh had become an alternate royal residence uh, to both Asher and Kela. So as you search out the historical books of the annals of, of Assyria and whatever um, nation you're searching, you'll find out the corroboration. The Bible is so intricate and so detailed that sometimes people say, that's boring, but God went out of his way to make it so specific in names and places so that it could be corroborated with history. Now, when you cannot corroborate the Bible with history, what do you, who do you think is wrong? History is wrong. Okay? Somehow they've got their dates wrong. And there are very few times. But when I have a choice, I go with the Bible. The various other kings used it as such. Like Asher, uh, Nasser Paul II. And that was in 883 to 859 BC before Jonah's time. And then Sargon II. In 722 to 705 B.C., after Jonah's time. So you see the link between these kings and the city of Nineveh. Now, therefore, many teach that the book uh, is subjective. And so they teach it as such instead of being literal. Um, and, and yet, as you look, it is a narrative, so it has to be taken literal. And so they come up with some crazy theology. And, of course, they throw out all what is objective truths. And so it becomes very subjective and, and they allegorize it, spiritualizing and teaching spiritual truth in a very subjective way. So, you know, Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard and her cupboard was bare and that meant that her thoughts were empty and she was lonely. And, you know, so you give all your own personal interpretation. And, man, you can be creative with this kind of stuff. And there are some preachers that do this all the time and people think, man. That is anointed. No, that's trash. The Bible is objective too, ladies and gentlemen. When the Bible speaks figuratively, it's very evident that it's figuratively. But even when it uses figurative language, it doesn't mean it's not a literal occasion or prophecy that's being given. And it's very evident through the scriptures. Others teach it as a parable doing the very same thing. And still others say that it's Midrash that functions as a commentary upon the particular biblical text, including illustrations and propositional explanations, but it is not a Midrash literature as such. The only way you can teach the book of Jonah is literal and actual history. That's the way it's presented. Now, the evidence is overwhelming for the literal teaching of Jonah, let me give you some. It speaks of real people in a real city of Nineveh. Jonah was a real historical figure. Nowhere else is his name found as as to the prophets except for what we gave there in 2 Kings 14.25. Now some place Jonah towards the end of the ministry of Elisha. And possibly one was uh, that he was a leader perhaps of the schools of the prophets that we read about with Elijah and Elisha. Now, Jesus believed, and uh, you know, we can argue all we want, and we can pull history books and commentators and all kinds of schools of theology, but the bottom line is, what did Jesus believe about Jonah? And Jesus believed in a real Jonah, and he linked him with Solomon and the temple, and one who preached at Nineveh, and used him as a prophet As a type of his resurrection. One greater than Jonah is here. And Nineveh, the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn you. Because they repented of the preaching of Jonah. An adulterous generation are you and wicked. No sign shall be given you except that of the prophet Jonah. As he spent three days and three nights in the valley of the well. So shall the son of man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's all we have to say. What did Jesus say? If they disagree with Jesus, they're wrong. You find this in Matthew twelve thirty nine through 41 and Luke chapter 11, 29 through 32. Jesus believed in Jonah and he used him as a type of his resurrection by the three days in the belly of the whale and the heart of the earth. The historian Josephus and the uh, catacombs of Rome have um, also given witness to Jonah more than any other. Church father like Jerome, Irenaeus, Augustine, Christendom and many, many others. The reformers, Calvin, Luther, and others believe and accepted Jonah as a real person. So um, those that would deny it uh, are really in the modern company of the uh, few and, and those that are out of touch with the authority of Jesus. Now, the date of the prophet Jonah and his book, he's one of the 12 minor prophets, there were six prior to the captivity of the northern kingdom, that's Israel in the north, by Assyria in seven twenty-two. Uh we've already covered Obadiah seven twenty-two or seven forty-five, Joel eight thirty-five, and this is BC all of these, and Jonah seven sixty-five. And um, the third in chronological order, the fifth in the order of our Bible. And then you have Amos seven sixty and Hosea seven forty. So we've covered a good number of these. And then Micah you have in 735. Uh, so those are the six uh, before the captivity of the northern kingdom. Then you have the minor prophets prior to the captivity of the southern kingdom. That's Judah by Babylon from 606 to 586. As, um, uh, and it consists of three. Nahum in 710. Saphaniah 625, and Habakkuk in 608 B.C. There are three minor prophets after the return of captivity of Babylon from 536 to 425 B.C. You have Haggai, 520, Zechariah, 520, and Malachi, 430. That gives you your 12. Now, a man by the name of Ezra, Ae, gathered the 12 minor prophets, in um, the great synagogue, in between quotes, in 475 B.C., and he called it the Book of the Twelve. Our Bible distinguishes the minor prophets from the major prophets, as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Uh, we are told that the title minor prophet was given because of their shortness and brevity of the prophetic content in contrast to the larger one, but that really is not a true A way to distinguish them because Daniel has less chapters than Hosea or Zechariah. So it is one way to do it, but it's not totally consistent with it. The minor prophets are in no way less important than the major prophets. They are not inferior to them. Both major and minor prophets are inspired by the Spirit of God. They are all scripture according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 and 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. The men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they were carried along by the Spirit of God. And everything is expired from God. God breathe. For us, problem for instruction, exhortation, reproof, and righteousness for the men and the women of God to be complete. Now, let me give you some key words, phrases, and verses in the book. Key words. The word great appears 14 times in the book. Six times for the chief or the major importance of a city or the nobles or leaders. And you find this in chapter 1, verse 2, 3, 2, 3, 3, 3, 5, 3, 7, and 4, 11. Eight times for large in size or extent. And this is found in chapter 1, verse 4, two times. Verse 10, 12, and 16, and 17. And then chapter 4, verse 1, and 16. There's the word wickedness. It appears nine times. Seven times it means disagreeable, unpleasant, or displeasing. Synonymous with disaster, misery, or harm. Jonah introduces it to us in chapter 1, verse 2. Then verse 7. Then 8. Then chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 1, 2, and 6. And only two times it means evil. And that's in chapter 3, verse 8, and verse 10. So you can see that words are used differently, though it may be the same word. But we do the same thing. You, you say that's a cool day, and you say that's a cool car. Two different things. One is literal, the other one is figuratively. Figuratively. And even a word can be used and mean differently in the context in the chain of words. So we, we see how that can be in, and it's more in other languages. Our English is so limited that, um, um, you know, we love our wife, we love our hamburger, and we love our dogs. I hope there's a difference. Um, in other languages, they're, they're greater in expansion. They have a greater and larger vocabulary, so they make a distinction within, within degrees or measures or different things. And that's the problem with translating things from the Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek into the English because of the limitation. Now, let me give you some key phrases. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, at the beginning, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. Very key. Because he's called a prophet of God. He's to be obedient. In chapter 2, verse 9, down in the middle of the verse, Salvation is of the Lord at the end there. Very key. Chapter 3, verse 10. Towards the middle, God relented. A key phrase. We'll find out what it means when we get there. Four two, towards the end, you are a gracious and merciful God. Key phrase. 4.11, the second portion, and should I not pity Nineveh? Key phrase. Now, let me give you some key verses. You have uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for there wickedness has come up before me. This is the whole crux of God sending Jonah. God cannot permit or condone sin with any agreement, He cannot wink at it. Habakkuk 2 5 is very, very clear. One seventeen. Now the Lord has prepared a great had prepared a great fish for to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. By the way, verse seventeen is the first verse of chapter two. The chapter division is wrong. It shouldn't have made it there. The verse and chapter are not inspired. Don't get freaked out. Okay, they all were just like one letter. Men have put them in. For the most part, they're right. And once in a while, they can be improved a little bit. This is one of them. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 10, another key verse. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Very key. How is it that God relents? We'll get there. We see it in the key phrase. We see it in the key verse also. Chapter 4, verse 9, another key verse. The rebellious heart of Jonah is revealed here. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for me to be angry about the plan? And he said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. Wow, what a key verse. Man. Now when we hear a child speak to a parent like that, we go, Oh. and our mind was saying, Whack him. You can tell I'm not politically correct. But how much, when you, how much more when you speak to God like that? You're the prophet of God. Wow. Let me give you one more. Chapter 4, verse 11. The compassionate heart of The uncompassionate heart of Jonah. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? This is the heart of God. Key verse. So, this is the book of Jonah. Now, let's look at the times of Jonah so we can fit it in a little bit. We know it's in um, Jeroboam II's time period. Um, 765 was usually the date that is given. There are some other ones, but I believe that's probably the most more accurate one. The northern kingdom of Israel had been uh, apostate for about 200 years at this point. Remember that. Um, uh, Jeroboam I had failed to trust God for the ten tribes that had been given to him through the prophet Ahijah and at the division of the kingdom between um, Solomon's son Rehoboam uh, in 1 Kings 11, 20-39. And so he set up two calf worship centers, Dan and Bethel, and the feast days um, so that the people would not return to Jerusalem and give their allegiance to the house of David. In 1 Kings 12, 25-33. He says, O Israel, here are the gods that delivered you. And he didn't trust. And remember, Haja told him, I'm going to give you ten. I'm going to give two to David. Benjamin and Judah. And if you trust me, I will bless you even as the house of David. But he didn't trust the Lord. He was afraid that they would all not give him allegiance. This brought complacency, social injustice, and apostasy, as we saw in the book of Amos. At the present time, Jeroboam II had successfully defeated the Syrians, resorting to ancient boundaries of the kingdom, as we have mentioned in First King fourteen twenty-five. Isn't it interesting? The Syrians are still a problem today to Israel? <laughs> The descendants of Ishmael are still a problem. The time was one of prosperity, as you know, seeming safety, and that God was approving of their evil lifestyle. Here's the great deception by many people. Though they're living in in a compromising and ungodly way, but they still go to church, they read the Bible, they say they're Christians... And because God hasn't taken actions, they conclude that God approves of their lifestyle. God is in no hurry to judge men. He blessed them for 50 years. God can judge you in one of two ways. Listen carefully. He can take everything from you. Or he can give you everything to make you think that he approves of you. And all your wealth, without God, you will bring destruction to yourself. Trust me. Assyria at this time was in a state of decline and weakness between the death of uh, Adad-Mirari III in 782 BC and the uh, seizing of the Assyrian throne by Tilgath-Pileser III in 745 BC, after Adad uh, Nirari the Third was uh, Shalmaneser the Fourth, 782 to 773 BC, and then Ashur Dan the Third, 773 to 754 BC, at which time Jonah probably came to Nineveh in 765. At that time, a trend towards their religion was monotheistic and Asherdan the third said quote put your trust in bell trust not in other gods see that's the one thing about a religion it's always changing when you're a christian the bible never changes your beliefs are never to change they remain the same every generation has had the same scriptures the same bible they've had to follow the same commands The same exhortations. The Bible isn't evolving. (laughs) All the progressive liberals think we're evolving. Yeah, downward. We're devolving. You kidding? Assyria was in a life and death struggle with the mountain tribes of Uradi and its associates of Manai, And Mandai in the north, who had been able to push their frontiers to within less than a 100 miles from Nineveh. The offer of repentance by the prophet Jonah had to have looked very inviting at this time. And this is the type of God we serve. That though we may have been wicked and horrible in life, God looks at the strategic time when we might be the most open And he doesn't use that to crush us. But he uses that to reach out to see if we will turn to him. As sinners, we do just the opposite most of the time. We say, oh, now I can really get him. And we take advantage of that. God is not like that. The contemporaries of Jonah were well-known individuals, the prophet Elisha, Amos, Hosea, and Joel. Good company. The historical setting for the prophecy of Jonah regarding Assyria is that Assyria prior to Jeroboam II had made um, Israel pay tribute for 50 years. So there's always animosity there. The person who's paying the tribute is the one who can't wait for the day where they are free. Assyria was well known as for three things, as we said this morning fertility cult, dealing with sexual perversion, and that brings children that are unwanted. So, therefore, they had child sacrifice to the god Molech, and they were cruel in their um, warfare, they were vicious. Um, they they plundered and, and, and prided themselves in the uh, many um, heads they would collect in the, in the in the skulls they would pile up. Uh, they would tear people's tongues out. They would um, tie men to horses and tear them apart. They would fillet them and skin them alive, lay their skin on the on the city walls. They would impale them through the abdomen on poles like. The real Count Dracula used to and just intimidate the armies that came uh, against him. They led their captives away with hooks in their lips, Amos 4 2 tells us. In fact, Nahum 3 1 through 4 says Woe to the bloody city, being full of lies and robbery, and the whip, and the multitudes of corpses, and harlotries, being a mistress of sorcery, selling nations and families. They were just evil. Entire cities will commit mass suicide rather than to be taken captive by the Assyrians. Assyria made many attacks on the northern part of Israel. And um, many have believed, and it wouldn't be a, a far stretch, that Jonah perhaps had suffered losses in friends or family members, and either in slaughter or in captivity, and so Jonah hated the Assyrians. He did not want God to forgive them by his own words, as we'll see in chapter 4, verse 2. He just hated them. He had a hard heart, as we mentioned this morning. Not because he didn't know his God, but because he didn't want to be like his God. Can you identify? We're just like Jonah. There are some people that I not That I didn't want to see saved. No way. But God has to deal with us, doesn't he? Because do I deserve salvation? Absolutely not. Jonah didn't want to be like his God. How was that? To forgive. You see, forgiveness brings everybody to their knees. Oh, we can say, ah, hey, forget it. You owe me some money? Forget it. Oh, you, you call me a what? Ah, forget it. Those are lightweight things. But when someone does you wrong personally, treachery, or whatever it may be that's really, really costly, then comes the test of forgiveness, and you will fail it on your own. You need the grace of God. There's no way you'll be able to forgive. And you have to lay that thing down every every day under the cross. Jonah would have to travel about 500 miles to this great city, the metropolis of the Gentile world, on the east side of the Tigris River, some 40 miles north of Zeb Junction, a three-month trip in those ancient days. So it was long. The city of Nineveh was the magnificent capital of the Assyrian Empire, and um, a constant um, uh, enemy of Israel, uh, established by Nimrod. You go back to Genesis 10:11. That's the first mention. And there was um, Nineveh proper, with its four cities. It was like a trapezoid, and uh, the Nineveh and the metropolis believed to be about 300, 350 square miles. It was bordered by three sides of rivers, the northwest of the coast, On the west was the Tigris, and on the southwest, the Geyser Zoo. And they, the upper, or great Z- Zeb, on the fourth side was mountains, uh, which ascended from the rocky plateau. And it was a, a fortified artificially all around the sides with dams, sluices, and they would inundate The land with water and canals uh, on the land um, to protect the city and the castle. And uh, we also see some of that in the city of uh, Babylon when we study Daniel. Um, Population estimated for a million would be conservative, probably a little more. Um, We're going to see that um, at the last verse of the chapter, God says uh, that there were 120,000 people infants that couldn't tell their right hand from their left so probably one to two years old and then you've got to add a male and a female and you got to add four or five children no birth control and um, so you've got a lot of people the outer walls were 60 miles around 100 feet high and wide enough for three chariots to drive abreast on it uh, spaced around the wall were 50 towers 200 feet high to guard the city And the inner wall of the city was only three miles in diameter. Its villages and suburbs stretched out 20 miles. You see Assyria prided herself. She was self-confident. It's recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 12 through 14. In verse 12 of Isaiah, the conclusion was that there will be a turning point after God uh, through um through the work that he was going to do, punishing his people in Mount Zion and Jerusalem by Assyria. And then God would punish the Assyrians for being arrogant and proudful and looking haughty. God did the same with Babylon. God said, I want you to go this far, Babylon, towards my people. But Babylon went further. And God said, oh, you shouldn't have done that. You see, God holds men responsible for their actions. God doesn't force people to do evil. God may use people. But God has lines. In verse 13 and 14 of Isaiah 10, God revealed the words of a serious boasting. No one saying a word to her. That there wasn't anybody that could confront her. Arrogant pride. As you know, Assyria was destroyed by Babylon in 612 B.C. So this was um, the time of Jonah. Now, the message of Jonah. First, the book of Jonah is the story of God's power to perform miracles. The first miracle was the mighty tempest that got hurled upon the sea. We saw that this morning. You find it in chapter 1, verse 4. The second miracle was the sea ceased from its raging in chapter 1, verse 15. That means the storm ceased and the water calmed completely. Now, you know the storm's over, but the sea still rumbles around. The miracle, one as well as the other. The third miracle in chapter 1, verse 17, was the whale that swallowed Jonah, or the large sea monster, literally is what it says. Um, most likely it was a whale, but that's, it doesn't say whale. Um, the general consensus is it was a whale. Um, the sperm whale certainly is large enough to uh, swallow a man. Uh, there have been accounts of men having been swallowed, and once the whale was caught, within two days, they were extracted. And I'll give you some of that archaeological evidence as we move through chapter 2 And that. Uh, the fourth miracle is... Um, the plan that God prepared to come up over Jonah to shade his bald head in Jonah 4, 6. Because remember, as he's swallowed by a fish, he's in those gastric juices for three days. He must have been a white yellow. Not a stitch of hair on him anywhere. He must have been quite a sight. And it's distressing because they worship the god Dagon. Where does he come from? The sea. The whale burped them up on the land. (laughs) We know whales that have big enough nostrils of six feet that it can. Whatever gets lodged in their in their uh, one of their stomachs, they have many depending on the whale. They will just blow that thing out through the nostril. (laughs) So, what we know about these huge sea monsters is very compatible with the record of Jonah. The fourth miracle here, again, the plant, um, and it's in the midst of obedience that God still tries to comfort the, the prophet. God is so good to us. The fifth miracle is the worm that God prepares to destroy the plant in chapter four, verse seven. And then the sixth miracle is the vehement east wind called the sirocco. And with the sun, Jonah grew faint in chapter verse 8 with all these miracles listen to Jeremiah 32 27 behold I am the Lord Yahweh the God of all flesh is there anything too hard for me he told that to Jeremiah when Jeremiah was in jail and God had told him that he was going to bring Judah back and Jeremiah started having second thought how is that going to be Jeremiah Is there anything too hard for me? (laughs) Of course not. Second, the book of Jonah is a story of God's grace extended to all mankind to repent and be forgiven and saved or be judged. First, to the prophet Jonah, God was desiring to change the prophet's heart, not his mind. If God can change your mind, someone else will change your mind. God wants to change your heart. That's what he's always after. Again, the name Jonah means dove, symbolic of peace. Kind of a contradiction of Jonah's name to an extent. The grace of God always results in the peace of God, and Jonah would have to appropriate the grace of God to experience the peace with God or of God, as Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says. And yet he slept as a baby. It wasn't God's peace though. So you can be disobedient and sleep like a baby at times. Other times you may be convicted. But it's not one or the other all the time. Second to the people of Nineveh who were so wicked and degenerated. All of mankind's laws being dead and trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2, 1 tells us. The book of Jonah is the 5th of the minor prophets as we said and the number 5 again is symbolic of God's grace. Jonah was to go and to cry out against Nineveh for her wickedness had come up before God chapter 1 verse 1 and 2. So God desires to deal with sin with grace and forgiveness, always. That's always the way God wants to deal with it. It's a strange way for God to deal with wrath, Isaiah tells us. You as a parent, I believe you would rather deal with your son or daughter with forgiveness and reconciliation than wrath. Though when forgiveness is put off because of the lack of acknowledgement and repentance, then wrath may have to be resorted to for ultimate reconciliation. And sometimes that doesn't even work. But God always wants to do the forgiving part rather than the judging part. Now, God is sovereign and he's merciful. Chapter 4, verse 2, that's why Jonah didn't want to go. Wasn't it when I was back in my country, I told you you're gracious, you're forgiving? That's why he didn't want to go. And so Jonah was the rebel of God. And I gave you this this morning, but for the sake of Sunday night and, and the radio that we put out, I'm going to give it again. Jonah was the rebel of God. In chapter 1, we see Jonah in the storm revealing disobedience and rebellion. Chapter 2, we see Jonah and the fish revealing discipline and seeming repentance, as we'll see. In chapter 3, we see Jonah and the city revealing proclamation through the seeming obedience. In chapter 4, we see Jonah and the Lord revealing resentfulness but learning. Jonah was also the prophet of God. In chapter 1, Jonah is portrayed as the rebelling prophet a lot of times they call him the prodigal prophet I don't call him that I did one time I don't now because the prodigal in Luke was not born again yet many teachers and preachers teach that Christians that go back into sin are prodigals that's not what Luke tells us in the the parable of the prodigal son the father said to the second son your brother was dead now he's alive he was lost now he's found he was never born again So I don't call um, Jonah the prodigal prophet. I call him the rebelling prophet, for he knew God. In chapter 2, Jonah is portrayed as a praying prophet. Chapter 3, Jonah is portrayed as a preaching prophet. In chapter 4, Jonah is portrayed as a pouting prophet. Then Jonah was also the instrument of God, as much as you and I are. In chapter 1, the will of God was to be obeyed. In chapter 2, the ways of God were to be learned from. In chapter 3, the work of God was to be rejoiced over. In chapter 4, the wise of God were to be accepted. All of this takes faith. Believing that God is and that he is a reward of those who diligently seek him. That he is holy, he can't make mistakes. Isaiah was a representative of God also. In chapter 1, God is pursuing the Rebelling prophet. In chapter 2, God is preserving the praying prophet. In chapter 3, God is preaching through the poisoned prophet. In chapter 4, God is preaching to the pouting prophet. So Jonah was to learn the lessons from God. But Jonah was a hard nut to crack. Jonah ran to Tarshish because he knew his God. Again, he didn't want to be like his God. Jonah was to recognize what a self-centered person he was. For the only time he rejoiced with great joy was when God relieved them from the heat on his bald head. In chapter 4, verse 6. It's all about me. This is an entitled generation that we live in. It's so self-esteem that it's fallen apart. The trinity of darkness, me, myself, and I. You just want to destroy your life. You get caught up in yourself. You think that you're the most important thing. You just think that everybody owes you something. You just think that your life has turned out because everybody's fault. My Lord. Give me a hug and go away. Jonah ultimately had to come to grips with his unloving and uncompassionate rebellion. For that reason, the book ends with a seeming unfinished way. But it is a rhetorical question that has a very obvious answer. Listen to it. Chapter 4, verse 9 to 11. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even the death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it to grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and much livestock? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. It is not right for Jonah to be angry. And uncaring over the salvation of the Assyrians. The book ends with that obvious answer. God was right. Jonah was wrong. And I believe as it ends, Jonah finally got the message. God was pursuing this hard-hearted prophet. Jonah had pity on the plan, yet he had nothing to do with the planning of its growth. But he had no pity for the Assyrians who were creating the image and likeness of God. So he put more value on things than people. Wow. You know what kind of day we're living in today? People will spend millions to free a seal. Yet they will promote. The killing of babies. How do you figure? Some people would rather have animals as their companions than people, than children. Children are a nuisance today. They're a liability to our society. We have come to a very unnatural place in humanity and it's worldwide. Jonah should have had pity on them, 120,000 little kids. Jonah was that unforgiving servant that had been forgiven millions and was throwing his brother who owed him only pennies in Matthew 18:21 through 35. Jonah and the unforgiving steward are talking about me. Talking about you. Our potential. If we don't walk with God. If we don't yield to God. That's as good as it gets. With our ability. Wow. You see I can understand. Why God saved me. But I don't know about you. That's our heart. This is the message of Jonah. Now. Now. The mission of Jonah, let me just summarize it here. To go to the city of Nineveh, we've kind of reiterated. Chapter 1, verse 2 through 3. Um, arise, go to Nineveh. Um, that great city. The message It's to be cried out because of the wickedness. The obedience to the command is rejected. The hardness of heart, in verse 3, goes to Tarshish. Uh, that um, Phoenician colony of Spain there. By the uh, Straits of Gibraltar. And um, Jonah just wasn't going to go. But secondly, to preach the message that God told him. And it came to him a second time in chapter 3, uh, verse 1 and 2. Jonah, Jonah was a, to arise and to go to Nineveh, that great city again. And um, he was to preach only the message God gave to him. Now, his message was 40 days and Nineveh is destroyed. Wow. doesn't sound like a very loving message to me, does it? Jonah's obedience was with reluctance. When we get there, we'll see that. There was no hope in Jonah's message. Chapter 3, verse 4. There was no joy in Jonah's heart for the repentance in chapter 4, verse 1. But thirdly, to acknowledge his evil heart. In view of the running away from God to Tarshish. Of chapter 1, verse 3. In view of the mariners who had compassion on him, but wouldn't throw him overboard at first. And yet, he, a prophet of God, sent to the pagans, had no compassion for them. In chapter 1, verse 12 to 13. In view of the pagan mariners calling out to God to forgive them for throwing Jonah overboard. Yet, he was not calling on God to forgive him for his disobedience. In chapter 1, verse 14. There's a lot of contradictions with Jonah. Fourthly, in view of Jonah's half-hearted repentance in the belly of the whale, it was evident as he prayed and he told God why he had fled to Tarshish. In chapter four, verse two, he hated the Syrians. He found himself in a difficult situation and had remorse rather than repentance in the belly of the whale. If he truly had repented, he would have rejoiced as he was preaching. He wouldn't have been mad that the Syrians were saved. He knew God was not partial. He knew God wouldn't reject anybody who repented. He's merciful. Chapter 4, verse 2. But also in view of the lack of compassion for the lost altogether. Chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 1 that we've pointed out. Again, his message, 40 days in Nineveh shall be destroyed. Which without any doubt was a joy to him. (laughs) 40 days in Nineveh is destroyed. Whoa. He was very happy. His mental state regarding the repentance was displeasure. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry in chapter 4 verse 1. The word but places Jonah in sharp contrast to God. He did not mind declaring the blessings to northern Israel, but he did mind preaching repentance to Nineveh. Also in view of his desire for death instead of life in chapter 4 verse 3 and verse 8. Jonah's conclusion was that it was better to die than to live. Therefore now, Lord Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Chapter 4, verse 3. Wow. Sounds kind of like Elijah. If Jonah really wanted to die, why did he ask God to deliver him out of the belly of the whale? He merely used God to get out of the difficult situation. Sound familiar? (laughs) God knew all of this all along. Jonah didn't fool God. It was only the evidence of the deceptive and desperate wicked heart of Jonah, according to Jeremiah 17.9. There are times when we think, no, I'm right, I am right. But I'm deceived because I'm yielding to my evil heart. Jonah's heart became harder as he sat outside the city to see if God was going to avert judgment by honoring the Assyrian's repentance, wishing only for himself death. It is better for me to die than to live. 4 verse 8. Wow. This guy has it bad. If a psychologist read Jonah, he would say he was clinically depressed. He wanted to give him some medicine. Jonah's uncompassionate and unloving attitude had tainted his message and tortured his mind. You understand what I'm saying? Our evil hearts will taint our message and torture our minds. Because bottom line, we know when we're wrong. This was the mission of Jonah. Let me leave you with a very basic and simple outline. For the book of Jonah. Chapter 1 and 2. We have Jonah's first commission. In chapter 1 verse 1 through 16. You have Jonah in the storm. Disobedience. And running. Verse 1 through 3, the call and rejection of his commission. 4 through 13, the sending of the storm by God resulted in desperation. The calling of God by the sailors resulted in their conversion, 14 through 16. Then you have Jonah and the fish discipline, and praying. You begin in verse 17 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. That's the better chapter division. In verse 17 of chapter 1, the great fish that swallowed Jonah. The prayer of Jonah comes in chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. The fish vomits Jonah on the land, verse 10. Then you have the second major division, Jonah's second commission. Chapter three and four. Chapter three, you have Jonah and the city, obedience and preaching. The second commission of Jonah, verse one and two. The obedient preaching of Jonah, three and four. The reluct, the repentance of the Assyrian, five through ten. Then you have Jonah and the Lord, pouting and learning. Chapter 4. Verse 1 through 3. The displeasure of Jonah at the salvation of the Assyrians. Verse 4 through 9. The reasoning of God with Jonah to no avail. Verse 10 and 11. The compassion of God is for all sinners. Simple outline. And so... I hope with this introduction, you have some background of history. You understand a little better as you read it now. And as we move through it verse by verse, and we take the in-depth studies on Sunday morning, by the time we get done with Jonah, you will know Jonah forwards and backwards, in and out. All about it. And you can point out to me what I have missed when I get done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your goodness. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for you, Lord. You are so incredibly loving towards us, so compassionate, so gracious. Teach us to be more like you, Lord. Help us as we grow older. Help us as we move through life that we don't become callous and tainted, that we remain broken and humble before you, that you might use us, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. Maybe you're over the internet. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man, and he certainly believed in Jonah, and he used him as his resurrection type, then you can call upon him, and he will forgive you, and he will save you. It's called repentance, the same message that he sent Jonah to preach to the Ninevites. It's your personal repentance towards Him, acknowledging that you are an enemy of God and that His wrath is over you until you agree with Him that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and you trust what He did for you that you could never do for yourself. And so, if this is your desire, this is your prayer, and right where you sit, God is going to save you by grace through faith. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit, Lord. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.